namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa putang tammang sanghang namasami Today is uh, one of those very special days, and uh, I've always been so impressed uh, with my life here in England uh, over the many years that I've lived here uh, because of the interest and generosity that I've experienced here. Uh, When I first came in 1977, I uh, I didn't know what to expect, and uh, being not even being British myself, uh, and never having lived in this country, I didn't. Uh, I had the perceptions of an American about Britain, which are different usually than the British perceptions of Britain, and then. Uh, and before I came here, then I'd ask the British monks in England, in Thailand about <laughs> what to expect. And they gave me all kinds of advice, which didn't prove very helpful. <laughs> but uh, Ajahn Chah, Lung Pa Chah, I think, gave the best reflection. Uh, he, he said, a Buddhist monk can survive, can live wherever there are kind-hearted people. And so this was, uh, you know, he was pointing out uh, this part of our humanity which sometimes is ignored or not recognized or even not appreciated. Uh, At this time, you know, if you listen to the news or read the newspapers, you hear, you know, gossip and and all kinds of uh, efforts to diminish or find fault or to ridicule or humiliate and make uh, human beings, human individuals look foolish or stupid or corrupt. Because there's a common attitude now that we're corrupt, we're selfish, um, and that our goodness uh, is never even recognized or acknowledged. And of course this past week in Rome they've had this uh, uh, beatification of Mother Teresa, which was quite inspiring, because this was uh, an obviously a good person that was has been recognized not only by the Roman Catholic Church but by people from all over the world of, of many of any religion, because uh, this goodness, <coughs> our good-heartedness, is a common human uh, factor that we share. Like Ajahn Chah was saying that wherever there are good-hearted people, you can live. You can be a Buddhist monk. He wasn't saying you can only live in Buddhist, where Buddhist people live, in a Buddhist country, or, or you'd have, or only Buddhists are good-hearted people. 
this impressed me because, uh, you know, coming from my background, I tend I have quite a cynical nature about humanity myself. So it's easy to believe the worst about humanity. And what I learned uh, in my early years living with Lung Po Cha in Thailand was uh, was this this kind of trust and faith in the goodness of humanity that Lung Po Cha himself had. When he came to to the to England with me in 1977, we came together in May 1977. Uh, he'd never been to another country before. I think he'd been to Laos, and that was about the only other country <laughs> that he'd ever visited. So it was his first venture outside of uh, the Buddhist world into uh, Europe, and he was, uh, you know, he seemed very eager, very interested in everything. But one thing, the, the, one, the many things that impressed me was his openness and the way he could relate so well uh, as a uh, Thai monk, uh, keeping within the regulations of our vinaya, and yet being so completely at ease within the context of his brief stay in London, uh, either with not, not only with uh, Asian Buddhists, but with uh, the British themselves, or European people who are interested in Buddhism or in Buddhist meditation. Because his approach was a meditative one. He was uh, famous for his teaching, which was very simple. He, he could make the Buddhist teaching something that we could all respect and understand and practice. Like any tradition, religion can easily become very complicated, especially a very ancient one like Buddhism, because it is 2,547 years old, and of course in our terms of history and time, that, that's an ancient time. wonder what was here, right here in this spot in Hertfordshire 2,500 years ago. And and so the the Buddhist teaching then has been, you know, was based on a universal, on universal reality, not on some kind of cultural identity. So you can see why the, the, this particular teaching that he gave 2,500 years ago resonates with us uh, people today here in Europe, how that teaching uh, seems even so appropriate to the problems that we have as human individuals living in this society here in the UK at this present time. So we're not just uh, kind of taking an interest in antiquities or old-fashioned philosophies, but he was speaking about something that we all recognize for one thing, that, that the Buddha established the, the Sangha, or the order of monks, of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, on, on this, uh, um, as alms mendicants, meaning that, that you have no personal uh, wealth at all. You, when you become a monk or nun, you, you give up your rights over property and, and money and wealth. So you're, you're an alms mendicant order, a bhikkhu 
the word bhikkhu itself means the one who depends on alms. Uh, so our very existence depends on, on, on alms. And of course today is the kind of ultimate almsgiving ceremony. Uh, in which even the, the His Majesty the King of Thailand participated, showing from the even from uh, a country that seems far away to us in Asia, yet the goodness even of a king is is coming towards this uh, community of alms mendicants. Then, of course, from all the other people that that have offered and the, those that have uh, sponsored the Kinglin Buddhist uh, group and uh, Shanti and, the, and uh, Noe and Supong have all been, Suwong, Suwong have all uh, made this possible. All, all efforts, all hands together, then this almsgiving ceremony uh, has been the event of this day. I think coming from a kind of a, a middle class background myself in the in the United States, you know, you when you're brought up in that kind of uh, society, in a very materialistic society, uh, very middle class values. Uh, Always, and those values are always about trying to get better. To always uh, the utter faith and belief in progress, and in and that nothing is good enough as it is. That you can always improve it, make it better. And so, in the capitalist system, one is never, you know, if you c the system would fall apart if they taught uh, alms mendicancy. Or the value of of, uh, of uh, Buddhist teaching, which is based on contentment and gratitude. But in, if you were trying to create a, a a free market system, you can't you can't ask you don't want people to be content. You want them to be greedy. <laughs> you know, you want to make them. You want to fascinate them with with advertising and dazzling prospects of improving their situation. Last year's model uh, is, is a humiliation. And uh, to be content is, is like being stupid, like a cow chewing grass out in the park. <laughs> and so in, in Thailand, when I lived there, uh, I lived in... Uh, <coughs> Ubo in Rajatani, which is uh, called the Isan or Northeast Thailand, and uh, it's the it was it was the poorest part of Thailand, uh, and the uh, monastery where Lung Po Cha lived at the time was very very poor. So uh, you know we didn't have any any luxuries or of any sort whatsoever. When I went there in 1967, I think it was. Uh, there was no electricity. Uh, he wouldn't allow a pump on the well because he said the monks would would then uh, become too independent if we could just pump up our own water. So what he liked doing was we all had to 
meet every day at three in the afternoon. They'd ring the bell, and we all were expected to assemble at the well. And then we'd draw on a pulley <coughs> old kerosene tins uh, that you'd let down. You'd 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 let down into the well on a pulley, fill it with water, and then you'd have to. And then you'd there'd be about three or four of us on the on the rope pulling this this bucket up. And then we'd take these these tins of of water on uh, bamboo poles in two marks, one in front, one in back. Put the bucket on this pole, and we'd we distribute this water to the various uh, washing places, bathing places, kitchens, and whatnot to provide the needs for the monks of the, for the day. Now, in those days, Lung Po Chau really liked that, saw the value of having to to depend on each other, even as, as monks living in the same monastery. Uh, even to get water, we had, it was too difficult, as you were really, you know, a very strong monk, uh, you know, could you manage to pull up one of those kerosene tins by yourself? <coughs> I used to be able to. <laughs> <laughs> But it was always much easier to, to do it as a group. And, uh, and so this was co in contrast to my own cultural conditioning. Uh, because uh, from the American side of me, I was brought up to be independent. Not to be dependent on anybody. The idea of being dependent on somebody was shameful. Uh, and so, uh, so you, the idea was to be completely independent and separate, announce yourself as a unique individual, uh, <clears throat> independent, I don't need anybody, I can take care of myself completely, was the uh, values that were dominant in the, in the uh, America of my day. I haven't lived in America for 40 years, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what the situation is anymore. Then, of course, contrast that, this complete independence, individualism, to living a life within an ancient tradition in a rather you know, remote part of the world uh, which, which were, had no luxuries at all. You know, we had to sleep on grass mats. We had, we had uh, mattresses or cushions of any sort. And uh, the, the life was quite, quite uh, you know, demanding. You had to get up at three in the morning and uh, meet for meditation and and then go out at dawn on Bindabat. And those of us uh, younger monks, we'd, we'd have to walk the long distances to the more faraway villages. And so you'd walk through the paddy fields in the monsoon season if feet would get all covered in fungus. You know, I think old men like talking like this about the, the old days. <laughs> uh, and so the, <laughs> and then you'd, uh, you know, you'd um, you'd go to villages and they didn't give hardly any food. They give rice. So you go and you collect rice, and then then uh, various people would bring uh, tiffin carriers or various preparations that they'd already made in into the monastery. 
So it was a kind of an old way, old-fashioned way of living. Nowadays, if you go to Wat Banong Papong in Thailand, it's much, it's quite, it's much more modern. It has elect, it's uh, electricity, good roads, paved roads, beautiful buildings. Uh, it's changed quite uh, impressively into, uh, you know, the, the the modern age. But that was that was that's only been quite only for the past 30 years or so that that has happened. The thing that one learns in uh, as a Buddhist monk is this contentment. Like when we, when we reflect on the four requisites, it's part of our monastic lifestyle to reflect on our life, on what we're here for, on on how we live. So this reflection on the four requisites is part of our, uh, our daily practice. So the four requisites that the Buddha allowed the bhikkhus 2,547 years ago, well, he allowed robes. So we could um, wear something. <laughs> uh, and, and it was based on a very low standard, on rags. So the, the standard that he allowed was not, you know, high standard cloth, you know, the best kind of material, but on, on uh, refuse rags, cloth that had been thrown away by the lay community that nobody wanted, or they even used cloth that, they, that had uh, previously been used for wrapping corpses. So this was called bangza cooler cloth, and it was kind of the you know, that's the most kind of um, disgusting cloth you could imagine, I'm sure. <laughs> and because this was a this was refuse, you know, then this was allowed. We could go and collect this kind of cloth ourselves if it was obviously thrown out. And then uh, we were allowed. The second requisite would be uh, allowed food. So he he put the the um, the standard at bindabata food, or food that is dropped into the alms bowl, so that you could receive, a Buddhist monk can receive food if it's offered from somebody dropped into their, put into their alms bowl. Uh, so we're not even to be that fussy about it. No, that's why uh, it's, not a, it's not a strict vegetarian uh, practice that we have, because we take what we get whatever people have the faith, the goodness to offer, that is received in the alms bowl. And then they, uh, so that's alms food, rag robes, uh, shelter for the night, and that's based on, uh, on living at the root, of, at a foot of a tree. So uh, that, that's, the, that's the, the most uh, undemanding place, isn't it? The most humble place that you can imagine to live under is a tree. And then uh, medicine for illness was based on fermented cow's urine, which was obviously a medicinal substance that was available in India in those days. And so these, uh, you notice the standard is at the bottom. It's not like middle class America, where standard... <laughs> is, uh, you know, I want pure cotton cloth 
of a fine weave. <laughs> and I want a certain kind of food, you know, <laughs> uh, special, special preparations, and I need a special place to live, you know, that just suits me and decorated to my taste, and the very best medical uh, facilities that the world has to offer. So, coming from a middle-class American background, living within uh, uh, a northeast Thailand forest monastery, you know, this is quite, quite a, a gap between those two. Coming from a, a capitalist society based on achievement and attainment, progress, improving, never being content, complaining about everything when it because you can see it, everything could be better than it is now. If you're a really critical person, wherever you go, you could always find something to complain about in whatever country you're in, even Switzerland. <laughs> and then this is what the Buddha was pointing to, was the suffering that we create. Uh, and this is, we have the, with it, that we, if we're not contented, if we're always wanting things to be different, wanting something uh, that we don't have, or wanting to get rid of something we have that we don't like, uh, then our life is going to be the continuous experience of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. Because these are, you know, these desires are, you know, the, they, even when you get what you want, you can't sustain a kind of fulfillment with that object for very long, can you? You know, you get what you want, then you start wanting something else. Uh, and so, the attitude then of the alms mendicant is to live in a way, a kind of traditional form. So, say monasticism as we see it here, is a form, it's a, it, it's coming from that tradition that the Buddha established 2,500 years ago. Uh, we're now the, you know, the, the, we're using that same form that he established. And the effect of it is to, the point of it, either the purpose of the form, is not just to, as a tradition in itself, it's not uh, our ambition to, to uh, kind of cling to a tradition or to, to uh, just perpetuate tradition as an end in itself. But it's a, it's a convention, it's a tradition that is to be used for reflection, for awareness, for mindfulness. <coughs> so when we talk about Buddhist meditation, the real essence, the essential point of Buddhist meditation is this reflectiveness, ability to observe and notice the way things really are. The Buddha's teaching is a teaching of awakenness. It's not a teaching that, is, that conditions you into something. It's not, it's, you know, you could see, you, we've been criticized sometimes for because we we can look like we're being institutionalized by the form. When we see the form itself, the the vinaya, the rules, and 
and all this, the tradition and all the rest, we, it's easy for a Western person to see it as a kind of institutionalizing us, a kind of re kind of conditioning, reconditioning us into Buddhist monks and Buddhist nuns. Uh, and so this, uh, this is how it might look. And it, of course, it's possible that that happens. You know, it's not to deny that possibility. But that's not the point, is it? That's not using the convention in the right way. Because we're not here to become, but to awaken. So this word awaken is the, is the, is the real meaning of the Buddha's teaching. Somebody once asked me in a, in a, in a public forum whether they said, could you describe the Buddhist teaching in one sentence? And I said, I can do it with one word. <laughs> I said, oh really? Wake up. <laughs> or is that two words? <laughs> Awaken. <laughs> so this awakenness is, you know, one can understand the word wake up or awaken, but the reality of it, what does that mean? You know, when we're awake, when we're really awake, we're present here. Now I can be sitting here and not awake. I don't mean that I'm falling asleep. But if I'm lost in my own thoughts and prejudices and views and opinions and emotional habits and I'm just, you know, I'm caught up in myself, in my greed or anger about life or fears or desires, I'm not really awake. I'm caught in the condition of my mind. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm living, even though you think, you might see me, my eyes are open, and I'm sitting here. But I'm not really awake because I'm living in a world of my own creation, my own desires, my own dreams, my own fantasies, my own views and opinions. Uh, and so that's not an awakened being at all. Might be very intelligent, very bright, you know, with fascinating views and opinions and and um, great fantasies and and all the rest, but that is that is not uh, that is not does not mean that I'm awake. So awakeness is the essence, isn't it? It means to pay attention, to be alert, not in the sense of of a, a kind of forced attention, but a sense of openness and receptivity in the present. So the attitude of, that the, the Buddha was pointing to, he was teaching more of an attitude as, as a way rather than a, than a certain technique or, or anything else. You know, it wasn't pointing to, when we talk about the path, then we think there's some kind of path we've got to find. But that's the limitation of words. So it's not even really a path. That's just a, a word that is used, convention. But it's really the awakened state, when we learn to, when we begin to recognize or realize this awakeness, this state of attentiveness, of receptivity, of alertness in the present, 
then, then that is the path. We begin to recognize that and realize the value. And see, that is the, the way or the path or the liberation from suffering. So the Buddha was pointing, you know, very directly. That's one thing that I think appeals to the Western world at this time. We're so tired of intellectual dreams and ideas and, and theories and that we've been through the past century through so many terrible disappointments. Communism and various political systems and ideals that people have set up based on, you know, freedom or democracy or, or communism or all these kind of high-minded things that we can create you know, theories that are quite uh, inspiring, quite, uh, you know, can be, can mean something very wonderful and, and, and we can agree that maybe it should be like this. You know, we should be living in a society where everybody's equal and there's fairness and justice, respect for each other, uh, you know, and there's the sharing of wealth, nobody's hoarding up wealth for themselves, there's no poverty, uh, and all the rest we can think of the perfect society uh, as how it should be. And yet, that is a function of the mind, the ideal of the perfect society. Uh, we can create that ideal into a perfect, into kind of perfection. Just We can use our thinking mind to create perfect ideals, you know, about the very best of, that you can possibly think. And then, uh, and then that is how we, can, we, can, we experience inspiration. We feel inspired by that. But notice that the Buddhist teaching wasn't about inspiration or ideals, but awakeness in the present. And awakening to the way it is not the way things should be. You know, that wasn't asking us to go around trying to transform the world and try to create the perfect society uh, and, and make the world perfect. But he was pointing to the way of liberation or freedom was through awakeness to the Dhamma. So we have this, this word Dhamma or the truth of the way it is. So this word Dhamma then is uh, when we awaken, in using Buddhist terms, we're taking refuge in the Buddha. This awakened state is Buddha then. Buddha means awakened. So when, when we talk about Bhutang Sernangachami, we can chant it like a, a, a formula, you know, Bhutang Sernangachami, and, and be totally, you know, not even know what it means. Now, this is what Theravadan Buddhists do. And uh, so we, we, we can say that, and we feel like we're being good Theravadan Buddhists when we say it. But we're not awakened yet. <laughs> so then, to me, you know, reflecting on, if, the, if I'm taking refuge in the Buddha, what am I taking refuge in right now, at this very moment while I'm sitting here? Is I'm taking refuge in some kind of vague thing called Buddha? some historical sage? Can you take refuge in a dead sage? 
uh, or an idea. Maybe there's some kind of buddhic force around. You know, you can abstract it into uh, speculating about possibility of Buddha energy in this room that I'm taking refuge in. But I'm, that's another thought, isn't it? I'm creating another uh, theory about it. So, Bhutang Sernangachami, there's nothing fuzzy or abstract about that to me. It's when I'm in the, taking refuge in the Buddha, I'm present. This is the pure presence of being conscious at this moment. And so then that's, that, that is a safe place to be. And like a refuge is a place you go to for safety. And then so the safety then is in the awareness. Now this is to be contemplated and to be experimented with. And of course I've had, had the good fortune of being Buddhist monk for many years. And uh, the, one of the great gifts of this tradition and this form is that it gives you so much, I mean, the whole point of it is, our whole life, is to recognize, to develop this awakeness. Whether you're in Thailand or in England doesn't make any difference. The way you can be awake wherever you are. Uh, so, so this awakeness then is the path. And that path then is always here and now and present. The Buddha knows the Dhamma, knows the way it is. Now the critical mind, my critical mind, uh, from my middle class background, I was brought up in, uh, father was a businessman, my, uh, uh, brought up as a Christian, brought up at a time where, you know, you were, you know, you had an ed you were, we were educated to be critical of everything. So I learned to criticize myself, everybody else, the world. <laughs> and because I could always see how things could be better, how I could be better, how you could be better, how my mother and father could be better, how the Christian church could be better, how America could be better. <laughs> I'm still very good at that. <laughs> but if I take that as my refuge, it's it's terrible. Because I'm never content. You know, even when things are at their best, you know you can't sustain things at their best. You know, like the best is a peak moment. Sometimes in your life, things just seem perfect. Everything is what it should, every way just the way you want it. it. It seems to all come together at this lovely peak. But try to sustain that peak. You can't do it. And so there's this, this kind of sadness in our lives because even the peak moments we lose. We reach these lovely kind of crescendos and, and uh, experiences of life that, uh, that we would like to have as a, as a continuum. But the conditioned realm, its very nature, is change. And so you can't, you know, and this is the, the Buddhist team, awaken to the way things are, is that the conditioned realm is, its nature is change. That's the way it is. The body changes, the, the mental states change, feelings, uh, 
people, conditions, institutions, governments, economies, uh, whatever, you know, everything, the, the, the material world is in the relentless process of change. Everything is changing. So wanting it not to change is a kind of pointless desire, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you're really set up for misery if that's if you want to petrify everything, you know, make it kind of so that nothing changes. You get things to a peak and, and you can keep it like that. So, in awakening to the way it is, then we recognize this change. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing bad or unfair or unjust about it. It's just the way things are. And so, your, your attitude then isn't one of criticizing change and thinking there's, it, there's something wrong with change, but recognizing. So in this state of awareness, of awakeness, this refuge in the Buddha, we are able to witness change in a very direct way with you know, our own feelings, physical sensations, thoughts, emotions. Uh, the things we experience through sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch, and thought. They, we, we are observing change. We're awakened to the reality of anicca, or sape sankara anicca. All conditions are impermanent. Though we're not, that's not just an idea, you know, a Buddhist idea. That is a recognition of the way it is. If you practice like in vipassana uh, meditation, insight meditation. That's what you're doing. You're really observing. You're not, you're, not, you're, you're not taking sides for or against. You're just recognizing. You're not criticizing change because criticizing is a changing condition. So you're learning to sustain awareness rather than, than uh, try to hold on to things or get rid of things. So the attitude then is uh, an awareness that receives life as, as we experience it, whatever that might be. Because in our experience uh, of our lives, we're subject to the way things are, which aren't always the way we want them. And much of our life is not what we want, but it is the way it is. <clears throat> so there's, there's changing conditions, whether they're, they're pleasant or unpleasant, uh, desirable or undesirable, right or wrong, good or bad, whatever they are, we're, we're, our relationship to them is receiving them and allowing them to be, rather than reacting to them and always interfering, trying to get something or get rid of something. Because then we're lost in the confusion that we create, the suffering we create. So this awareness then, this awakeness, is the, is the, uh, say the, the one word definition of the Buddha's Dhamma. Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And the Sangha, the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings we recite, you know. What are the four pairs, the eight kinds of... <laughs> doesn't sound terribly inspiring as a, as a way of <laughs> taking refuge in 
four pairs of eight kinds. And then it's pointing to uh, the humans, the human beings. Like we're human also. We're not Buddhas as such. You know, we can't claim I'm a Buddha and and I'm the Dhamma and all that. But but I can claim my humanity. The humanity is is a reality. This is a human body. Uh, this is uh, and the human the human realities are like this. You know, we have we're sensitive forms. We're conscious sensitive forms in this present moment right now. So we're we're in a state of awareness of consciousness within a very sensitive and vulnerable form, and this is the way it is. The we we have um, mental af- abilities to uh, retain memories. So we learn, we can speak, we can create abstractions, we can remember things that happened from way back. We can memorize, we can can hold things in our mind. We can carry grudges for our whole life, remembering some totally unfair thing that happened to me 50 years ago. I can still remember that. (laughs) And I can, you know, if I wasn't, if I, uh, you know, if I didn't bother to practice Buddhist meditation, I could be, you know, really bitter about certain experiences of my life. I haven't always been treated, you know, fairly and understandingly and lovingly by by life. Much of it has been, but m- there are those experiences <laughs> where I've been, uh, you know, it shouldn't have been. Unpleasant memories. So the the awakeness then is recognizing that memories are what arise and cease in the present. A relationship to memory, to sensitivity, to feeling, to the body itself, then is not ownership or identity, but receptivity. Non-critical receptivity. So then the Sangha then is developing this, this way of awareness. The Sotapanna, stream enterer. Now, one, if one claims that as some kind of personal achievement, then it's, uh, it's kind of lost its point. Because there's nothing personal. It's, it's the re- reality of a moment where there is recognition of the way things are. So this means that this is pointing to Sangha, not, uh, not just monks or nuns, but Sangha as, as those human beings who actually recognize or realize the Dhamma as individual human beings. So then you have um, the, the uh, Sotapanna, Sakada, Kamiana, Kami, Arahant, where the Arahant is totally liberated from any form of delusion whatsoever. Completely present, knowing things as they are. So taking refuge in Sangha isn't taking refuge in some kind of idea that there are arahants somewhere in this world. <laughs> in a, up in the Himalayas maybe, or in northeast Thailand, or in the 
Sri Lanka somewhere, there must be a few Arahans somewhere. <laughs> Take refuge in those, or you know, people get really excited about wondering who's a Sotapanna, who's attained stream entry, and and whether they're an Anakami or a Sakadakami. Mm. These are creations of the mind, aren't we? We're using those words uh, uh, out of ignorance. Because they're not, they're not things to, to, to grasp, but realities. You know, so we're, we're taking refuge in that, within ourselves, you know, the awareness. The more we trust in the awareness of the moment, in the pure presence of being, of pure consciousness, that you, you recognize there is no self in it. That a self is a creation. More and more you see that, that no matter how miserable life can be in the present, my aversion, my resistance, my anger against it is the suffering. You know, that's the... I, you know, I, can, I can't ask the world just to treat me kind and with under, kindness and understanding and fairness all the time. No, I have. I've expected that from everybody, but I don't always get it. <laughs> but the... But the uh, so I, I've given up, you know, expecting it even, because I realize that's not really important. You know, that's not really what I'm here for. But to, to be able to not create misery around the unfairness of life or the mistreatment or the lack of respect or whatever I may be receiving. So this is where these three Buddha Dhamma Sangha begin to really, you know, have some core to them. It's no longer just Theravada Buddhist tradition taking the five precepts and three refuges and uh, as the thing that Buddhists do. But you're internalizing. You're, the Buddhist teachings are always about the present, the here and now, the awakeness, the way things are, seeing, uh, being fully attentive. Now, this, this also is uh, the, uh, the alms mendicant form in terms of the way we've chosen to live our lives, the monks and the nuns. So we've, we've volunteered to live like this. Nobody's put a gun to our head and forced us into the sangha. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it's, it's completely voluntary. You can, one can leave any time. It's not, you know, you don't uh, kind of force people to stay if they don't want to. So it's you know, it's it, it's coming from from ourselves, you know, from inwardly. You know, we it's uh, something that that we've chosen to do, commit, made our commitment toward. Then the tradition, the the Vinaya discipline, all these are not something just to grasp as ends in themselves, but how to use them for awareness, for awakeness, for liberation. And of course, this is where we're developing panya or wisdom. How to use these conventions so they actually, you know, they're, they're helping us to awaken rather than blinding us. One can grasp conventions and be blinded by very good things. 
you know, if you just grasp them out of ignorance, then, you know, you, you become institutionalized through them. And you, you can't become liberated through grasping the conventions. The conventions are here for reflection, for awareness. Alms mendicancy is here for awareness. It's not trying to say how wonderful we are, how humble we are, how pure we are, that we live in such a fine way. And we're not kind of boasting or, or pretending that we're somehow better than anyone else. You know, who, people who have wealth, you know, you know, we're not trying to say we're somehow a step above those wealthy people. But if we do that, then we're misusing the convention, isn't it? We're, we're using it uh, to institutionalize ourselves, to blind ourselves. So this is where we, we need to develop this faith or trust in this simple act of awakeness, attentiveness to the present. When we do this, then we reflect on our requisites in terms of worldly needs. You need something to wear, something to eat, a shelter for the night, something for illness, medicine for illness. So this is, these are requisites that the Buddha himself, you know, put at a very low level. But you don't have to, you don't have to keep to that low level. It's not an ascetic form. You know that we can't receive the robe from the king because it's the cloth is too good, too high quality. <laughs> uh, so you have these little uh, kind of addendas to to the the basic rag robes and then they said but if people offer cotton, linen, wool, even silk <laughs> so uh, that these can be received so like today the offering of the katina cloth that was uh, the lay people at the time this is in the, the, from the history of the Buddha Sasana is uh, the lay people gained so much respect for the monks that they wanted to offer special cloth and ask permission uh, of the Buddha. So the Buddha gave permission to make this offering of cloth. So this is how this Katina ceremony uh, developed from the uh, ancient times. Nowadays we live in a, in a society where there's an abundance of cloth. At the time of the Buddha, I imagine, cloth was, was not easy to get. It was hand-woven, and um, so they didn't have manufactured textiles of any sort. So probably it was of great value. So it was, you know, where now, of course, a cloth is uh, it's everywhere. You know, <laughs> you know, there's no problem about getting robe cloth. We don't have to go around... Uh, searching in the back alleys of Berkhamstead for rags. <laughs> in fact, you know, if you Oxfam and all these places, <laughs> there's a plethora of, of cloth nobody wants anymore, isn't there? <clears throat> or food. Uh, you know, this is there's an abundance of food and 
and uh, people are willing to provide shelter so we don't have to just live out in the winter time in England under a tree. So they, they provide, uh, you know, very nice accommodation, medicine, national health, or whatever. So you have, you know, the requisites are, are very abundant because of the goodness. I see this as something to be grateful for, develop this kadanyu, that in terms of my experience as a Buddhist monk in Thailand or here in England, uh, the requisites have always been provided in abundance and uh, in a joyous way. And people uh, noticed in Thailand how, you know, willing, how eager people were to provide me with the requisites. <laughs> it wasn't like I was some kind of, you know, going around kind of waiting for people to offer me something. Usually you can get quite arrogant in Thailand because they come running after you. <laughs> so you almost, you can become very arrogant as a Buddhist monk because you think you're doing them a favor. They say, please, wait, 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 I want to offer some food. Oh. <laughs> so even even an alms mendicant can, you know, if we use it wrongly, we can, <laughs> you know, we can make ourselves arrogant and and uh, conceited through it. You know, like with the holy lie, it's easy to to uh, develop a holier-than-thou attitude. Uh, you know, our personalities, we tend to, you know, we hold this, uh, we're somehow better than the rest because we're very strict monks. We keep the vinaya. We don't touch money uh, and so forth. So we can, we can be very proud of ourselves for being so strict and so pure. And in that, we can also feel like we're better but that's, that's uh, what, what am I doing if I do that? I'm creating, isn't it? I'm creating. Arrogance is something I create. Feeling I'm better than somebody, I'm creating that feeling. That's not the way it is, is it? That I'm better than anybody. I mean, it's, I'm creating that sense. Or I'm purer than others, or whatever. Or it can go the opposite. Like one thing I found in, uh, with, uh, in Christianity, where they always say, I'm such an unworthy sinner, so unworthy and impure and sinful. And to a Buddhist monk, that sounds pretty much like I'm very pure. and <laughs> Only the reverse of that, isn't it? So it's not, not a kind of identity with, with poverty, with simplicity, with purity. But the point of the whole form is to awaken us, to see those tendencies to grasp or identify, to idealize ourselves, to create ourselves into the present. Either as superior, better than somebody, or worse than somebody, or even the idea that we're all just the same is still a creation of my mind. Isn't it? Language and thought, these things I create, When I'm in the state of awareness, pure awareness, then it's not, it's not a thought anymore. It transcends the thinking process. So 
it's aware of thinking, but it doesn't, doesn't grasp the thinking. You can have perspective on thinking, on feeling. So the Buddhist teaching then is not idealistic. You know, it's not saying how things should be. Uh, it's not pointing to a future time where everything is just going to be wonderful if we behave ourselves. You know, so if you, if you be a good bhikkhu for your lifetime, you, you go to a heavenly realm. And so then that might be, I'm a good bhikkhu because I want to be reborn in a heavenly realm, the next one, next one around. Or the Buddha is pointing, he used the word nibbana. And then we can take the word nibbana, and may, that's a kind of heavenly realm maybe. It's very high, you know, very refined place. <coughs> Or it is an enigmatic word. You know, how we take that word, nibbana, and what does it really mean? What is Buddha was pointing to reality, to the reality of non-suffering and non-attachment and non-self, which is now, you know. It's not, nibbana is not some state that you're rewarded with if you're a good monk or nun not a reward it's a it's a reality so this is the awakeness to reality of this moment and so this is this is the the whole uh, thrust of the Buddhist teaching this kind of wake up wake up wake up pay attention and rather than become become a good monk make yourself into a good monk or a good nun you know, you've got to become enlightened in the future. Uh, there's always this becoming of, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not good enough now, but I hope to become very good in the future. I, I want to become an arahant in the future. I want, and so forth. And this is the way the thinking process works. And when you, when you create yourself through thoughts and memories, and that it always... It's always the, the reality of time then, or the illusion of time, the past, present, future, seems very real. When you're awakened to the present, then it's a timeless reality. And so this is, when we talk about reality, then this is, you know, the way it is. The Dhamma is reality. It's not an ideal or an abstraction. So today it's just uh, such an, a lovely day uh, and uh, to have you all come and to uh, have this opportunity to, to meet together and to share our lives as Buddhists and those that take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha or even those that don't, doesn't matter, the convention, because we're, you know, we're, we recognize it's the goodness that brings us here. It's our human goodness, that, that which we want to share, or generosity, or goodwill, uh, love. These kind of words convey this, the goodness of our humanity, that we come here because of that. We have something good. We, we, we don't, people don't come to Amravati to commit crimes. 
Sometimes they do, but it's not generally the case. <laughs> and then we, we came here like to, to give dana, to bring food, to offer cloth, to offer requisites, to, to, to respect the, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and so forth. So these pointing to this goodness and this aspiration of our humanity, this is we have in common with all human beings everywhere. At a time now where there's so much fear and paranoia and conflict because we see, we see other people as the enemy. You know, we, the terrorists, the Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, the, the, the Muslims, <laughs> or, the <laughs> or uh, uh, Saddam Hussein. <coughs> Osama bin Laden is an enemy, you know. So then, this then of course this this creates this division again, me against Osama bin Laden. When I recognize in, through awareness the the common humanity, it doesn't mean I'm dismissing the the terrorist acts or the evil deeds done by others, but from this recognition, this reality of, of, our, of our common ground of being human, we can also see other potential for us, for ourselves, for doing terrible things. I can see that in myself, the potential for me to have lived this life in some way, some unwholesome way. That possibility exists as a common human potential. But because of the goodness, this drew me into, into Buddhism, into the monastic life, was something in me. At the time, I didn't feel particularly good when I became a monk. <laughs> wasn't while I was going around thinking how good I am. I was thinking I was very much aware of, uh, I didn't like myself very much. I was very self-critical. So I wasn't thinking I'm so good I can only live as a Buddhist monk. But but it was through this reflectiveness that I began to recognize uh, our human, the human ground of goodness that we share. And I think this needs to be emphasized and made more conscious at this time. I encourage you all to do it, to become aware, more respectful, more appreciative of your own goodness, your generosity, kindness, that we we that we do have, not all the time, but when we have it, and it's something I I want. You know, I want if I'm going to act and live in this society, you know, the goodness, my goodness, wants me to be somebody living in the society that is of use, that is benefiting, that is not causing conflict or misery to to the society I'm living in. You know, I, I want to live in this country, in this society, as, uh, you know, to, to be some, a, a good member, a good citizen, something that, that brings peace and harmony, goodness, love, generosity into, uh, into this society, or helps as part of that momentum. So this I encourage you to do, and to see like the, 
the Buddhist teaching, because it is based on universality, it doesn't divide things up. We're not, a, uh, we're not condemning anybody or pointing to the cause of suffering as, as external. So we're not, we're not pointing to any, any group, any individual, any religion, any cult, anything like that as, uh, and blaming them because we're recognizing that suffering is, the suffering that I can really be free from is what I create out of ignorance, out of not paying attention, not realizing the way things are. So I offer this as a reflection for today.